deceptive manipulative. Is also a former social worker and a political campaign activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Eerie Americas. This is Vicky Ayala. And this is Christy Hall. What up? What's up, Christy? Do anything interesting the last couple of days? Like anyone else, I'm trying to hashtag stay home. So I did that. But it was tough because this was the first birthday for my husband that we've been at home. We always do something fun or exciting because his birthday is like in spring. So, you know, it's usually like a nice weekend and we try to go do something. And it's like early spring where it's not like super hot. So it's still kind of comfortable to do shit outside. Exactly. But then the day before we got the most snow we've gotten all winter apparently and then the following day it was 65 so most of it melted so it was tempting to go outside but at the same time it was like no let's kind of do what we should Another thing we did was our Netflix party. Yes, it was fun. Yeah, so if you guys haven't checked it out, it's really cool. I'm going to date myself here. It's kind of like Blockbuster and AIM had a grandkid. That's what Netflix party is. Or anybody who's kind of a gamer that like watches people on Twitch and you can watch someone play something and then there's like a chat on the side, but it's less gamery. It's like we were watching something together, but we got to talk about it, but it was through the computer. It was like weird. It was it was like when you were on AIM and you were like instant messaging. I got to put my phone down and watch the movie, but still talk to you guys. And it was a movie that I have been putting off seeing since, I don't know, it came out in 2012. We watched Silver Linings Playbook. I have never seen it. It was pretty easy to use. I was surprised. But you can all pause it whenever you want. You can play it whenever you want. Yeah, it's like a universal remote. It was pretty cool. It was pretty awesome. And I just picked that movie because I was just like, it's a crazy film, but it's still uplifting in its own way. And that's something that it's like a perfect distraction movie because you kind of get involved in the characters and they're pretty bananas. To me, it was also really realistic. You know, some movies you watch them and you're like, that would never happen in real life. That's not the way they would solve that. That's not what they would do. And I was like, you know, in real life, if this person existed, I really feel like they would say that. I feel like they would do that. Which is not something I say about movies with like super big actors in it because normally they like super far-fetched. But I just enjoyed our commentary because we still got to do the back and forth without being those people that are talking during a movie. So it was really cool. So for everybody who's stuck at home and missing their friends or missing their family members, I would seriously recommend Netflix partying it up with your friends because it's a really good way to stay in contact with them and do something other than just sit at home and miss being outside and stress and (laughs) give yourself anxiety as Christy knows. Do something not terrible like Netflix party. You know, my favorite section of Reddit is creepy true stories. I still don't know if all of them are true, but as long as I put in true stories, I'm going to go by this is true. Let's see. Okay. So here I have, I appeared as a shadow person, apparently, is the very first sentence of this story. So here's what happened. I was dreaming that I was overlooking my parents' bed, and I was really fascinated with this deck of cards on the nightstand. It was my folks' room, but in this dream, the walls and everything was like something straight out of Dormammu's realm in the Doctor Strange movie. Don't know if I said that right. So sorry if I offended anybody who is obsessed (laughs) with Doctor Strange. Come breakfast time, I tell my folks about it. And my dad looks at me weird and says he woke up in the middle of the night and a black outline slash shadow version of myself that was darker than the rest of the room was overlooking his bed. He knew it was me and called out my name. And then apparently the shadow, the shadow slowly dissipated. Amusingly enough, my mom is a devout Catholic, but she was neither disturbed nor concerned. She just remarked, would you look at that? My boy has magic powers. The world is a weird place and the places that we can't see are even weirder, apparently. That's really fucking strange. Like, I've heard of people saying they've had out-of-body experiences before they die. But the other person doesn't know. Like, if you, like, other people don't know. Or sees the other person. Like, that's what's crazy. Maybe he's able to astral project and his father's able to see it. I just find it real funny that the mom was like, oh, look at my, you know why? Because it's a boy. If it was a a girl, if if this was a Hispanic family and this was a girl, she wouldn't have said shit. But because it's a boy, it's like, look at my she would have called her like, like a, bruja. a bruja. Exactly. Which means witch in Spanish. She would have called her a witch and she would have like thrown holy water on her. But because it's a boy. Oh, look at my son. He has magic powers. This is definitely Hispanic mom. Oh, the power of my son. But I found that creepy, but not. But because of the mom's reaction, I was like, oh, that's not that creepy. Because, you know, a devout Catholic normally would not 
respond like that. They'd be very concerned. But the fact that all his father did was like, oh, I knew it was you. I just called your name out. Your whole family is awesome and weird and creepy at the same time. That's why he can astral project. Without even knowing, he didn't even try. This is a case I've been wanting to cover. I'm obsessed with Canada. We just have to go to Canada when this is all over. It's going to have to happen. Once they invite their borders open again and we're all okay, I'm like, there's no way. Now this is making me regret all the places I haven't been. That's for damn sure. This case in particular is pretty crazy and it involves a young woman named Jennifer Pan. This case is a love story turned tragedy. A story of two people who met in a foreign land, who fell in love, got married, had kids, and later in life one dies. Sounds like life, right? What if I told you they were both attacked, tied up and screaming, unsure what was going on? The wife is now dead, and the husband is fighting to save his life. Killed for hire. These types of murders are usually a spouse or significant other who, for one reason or another, wants to get rid of their partner, either for some fast cash, for another person they want to be with, or domestic violence that escalates to the worst scenario. This case, however, is unique, and the reasons behind this murder and attempted murder are asinine and immature, and you'll see why the case of the Pan family who could have lived a hundred lives and would never have expected that this is how it would end and even more shockingly who it was that was responsible for it. A woman named Bic Ha and a man named Hui Huan Pan were Sino-Vietnamese immigrants to Canada. Sino-Vietnamese means the easiest way I can describe it is it's words of the Vietnamese language borrowed from Chinese. Okay. Han was born and educated in Vietnam moving to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Bic also immigrated as a refugee. They met, the couple were married in Toronto and lived in Scarsborough. Their children are Jennifer, born in 1986, and Felix, born in 1989. The Pans found employment through an auto parts manufacturer called Magna International in Aurora, Ontario. Han worked as a tool and die maker, while Bic made car parts. Like many immigrant couples, they worked relentlessly hard for their money to make sure their kids had the upbringing and opportunities they themselves never had. Han and Bic were frugal throughout their lives in Canada, and as a result, by 2004, they were stable enough to purchase a large house with a two-car garage on a residential street in Markham, a town with a large Asian population, about half were Asian. Bic drove a Lexus ES300, and Han drove a Mercedes-Benz C-Class. How fancy. Moreover, they had acclimated 200000 Canadian in savings for retirement. So they raised their kids, they bought their house, they got their cars. And they saved for retirement. Yeah, it's pretty much like what everybody wants the to dream, do. Right, the dream, right. Like yeah. The dream, not even just the American dream, just the dream in general. Though they have two kids, Jennifer was the apple of their eye, becoming known as their golden child. Their expectations for both of their children were very high, and they demanded the absolute very best. Jennifer played piano, swimming, did martial arts, and she was so good at figure skating for a spell she thought she would become an Olympic contender, but an injury halted that possible career. As a straight-A student at Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School in North Scarborough, she won scholarships and even got an early acceptance to college. She later stated she graduated from the University of Toronto's famed pharmacology program and went on to a blood testing lab at Sick Kids Hospital. Jennifer made her parents swell with pride. Sounds picturesque, but like a lot of ideal sounding things, this came with a heavy price, specifically for their daughter, Jennifer. See, Jennifer was the eldest and not only the eldest, but a daughter. As a first generation of myself and the eldest, I can relate to some extent about the pressure that comes with that. Because our parents come from third world countries and sacrifice what they had, this usually translates to an expectation of some form from you, be it academically, in home life expectations that many other kids don't have to deal with, or even for your personal lives. In Jennifer's case, it was all of this combined. They controlled every aspect of her life. Her father had insanely rigid rules for her, and he was known as a tiger dad while mom Bic let Hui kind of take the reins. And I do have a lot of like Asian friends. It is a cultural thing. They come to this country and they expect a lot of you because they work extremely hard. And it's not the normal like, you have to do better than I did. It's you cannot disappoint your parents. You have to excel more than what we have. Right. They have crazy, crazy expectations. And especially the eldest, they're also expected to like take care of their parents when they get older. There's a lot of things that comes with being the eldest child comes with being a daughter and comes just with the culture of them coming here to give you a better life. Like you said, I also have a lot of Asian friends. And I think even for me, a lot of what they would go through to make their families happy was insane. Yeah. But like you said, it's all very cultural. And tiger parenting, for those unfamiliar, is a practice in the Chinese community. I got this off Wikipedia. 
and it means the parents are involved in every single aspect of their children's lives. Some who oppose the style of parenting see it as a negative as you don't let your kids grow to learn who they really are, while supporters of the style of parenting believe long-term it leads to success in life for their kids. Guess it all just kind of depends on who you it ask. It depends. I feel like it does, but that's because it's one of those things where, like, me, I had a, I have parents that are like, oh, you know, I want you to be this. Like, I want you to be a doctor. I want you to be a lawyer. But they didn't sit there and force me into any of those fields. They just wanted it for me. Whereas a tiger parent, if they say you're going to be a doctor, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be what whatever it is that the path that they think is best for you is the path you're going to go down. So it might lead to success, but it also leads to a lot of other things because it doesn't mean that that's what you want. You could get all that and that's not even what you wanted it's sort of like those parents who kind of come in on a kid if they have any like great sports or studies right but it's a bit different because this style is all about all aspects of your life like you don't just get to be the pressure of the doctor you get a pressure of who you date you get the pressure of who you're on the phone with you get a pressure of every single thing that goes on in your life just to give you some insight into what it was like for jennifer according to wikipedia in an article by the washington post The pants picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and monitored her extracurricular activities constantly. They never let her date boys while attending high school. She never went to high school dances or proms because they feared these events would distract her from her academic obligations. Jennifer wasn't even permitted to attend any parties while she was attending university, aka college. Who doesn't go to a party from time to time in college? Like you're actually an adult at that point. My parents are pretty strict, but I still got to do certain things, especially once I turned 18. But get this, at age 22, from this article I found on the post, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, visited a friend's house, or gone on a vacation without her family. I thought Hispanic people were bad about like not letting you sleep over other people's houses. I still went to other people's houses. She had never visited a friend. That's insane. Jennifer's and her friends regarded this upbringing as restrictive and greatly oppressive. You think? Well, yeah, you think? But like most girls and young adults, there are always ways around this. You can get away with a few things here and there, but despite all of this oppression, Jennifer had built her life on lies. Everything her parents believed about her was utter bullshit. How? They like tracked her. Wait. Now I'm like backtracking. I'm like, you said she said that, but not that she did. Oh, I'm very curious now. A girl's got to do what a girl's got to do. But this girl is like um, the most master deceptor I have researching anything that I've researched for this podcast. I would love to know how she lied about her whole life to tiger parents that literally tracked her every move. Okay. Well, here we go. In her story published in Toronto Life magazine, reporter Karen Ho detailed the complex web of deceit that her former high school classmate Jennifer, so a journalist who happened to go to high school with her, (laughs) wrote this article. Jennifer spun to prevent her parents from discovering the unimaginable, that their golden child was in fact failing. With court documents and interviews, Ho put together Pan's fall from a precocious elementary school to a compulsive liar who forged report cards using old report cards, scissors, glue, and a photocopier. She created report cards with straight A's, scholarship letters, and university transcripts, all to appear perfect. This began at age 14. Oh my god. But you see, this goes, this goes to show you what they expect, that she had to go through those lengths because she probably couldn't tell them that she wasn't a straight A student. And she's 14. You start lying to your parents no matter how perfect your relationship is, but to be this oppressed at 14, you're going to start going, fuck this, I'm going to find ways out of yeah, this. Yeah, it's one thing to lie and be like, I'm here when you're really not. It's another thing to like lie about your whole life and say, I am this type of student, I got a scholarship, I'm going to college, and you're not. Well, their high school, Ho wrote, was, quote, the perfect community for a student like Jennifer, a social butterfly with an easy, high-pitched laugh. She mixed with guys, girls, Asians, Caucasians, jocks, nerds, people deep into the arts. Outside of school, Jennifer swam and practiced the martial arts of wushu, end quote. But Ho would, quote, discover that later that Jennifer's friendly, confident persona was a facade. Beneath was she was tormented by feelings of inadequacy, self-doubt, and shame. Of course. Among the signs that few saw, cuts on her forearms that were self-inflicted. The real Jennifer never enrolled in university. (gasps) At all? So she didn't even have to, it wasn't like she was lying about grades. She legitimately was lying about even being a college student. Not only that, she never graduated from high school. (gasps) How do you fake a graduation? Jennifer's parents assumed their daughter was an A student, wrote Ho in the article. In truth, she earned mostly B's. Respectable for most kids, but unacceptable in her strict household. 
So Jennifer continued to doctor her report cards through high school. She even received a, quote, early acceptance letter to Ryerson University in Toronto, but then failed calculus in her final year and wasn't able to graduate. So that was a real letter? Yes. That was a real? Okay. You see what's so crazy is that she wasn't a straight A student. She got mostly B's and she still got early acceptance to a college. And that probably wouldn't have been good enough for her parents. So she felt like she had to lie about right. it. That is insane. University as a result withdrew its offer because she failed. She didn't graduate. Failed, like, right. what are you going to do? And now this poor girl's desperate to keep her parents from digging into her high school records. So she lied even more and said that she started at Ryerson in the fall. Well, you have to at that point. You can't just once you start that, you have to keep going. So deep into the lie. Her whole high school career has been a lie. So she has to keep going from here and lie further. She said her plan was to do two years of science, then transfer over to U of T's pharmacology program, which was her father's dream for her. Han was thrilled and even bought her a laptop. Jennifer amassed used biology and physics textbooks and bought school supplies. So she went as far as buying used books to cover this lie so she could study at home, have her parents believe that she's going to school. When it came to tuition, she doctored papers stating she was receiving an OSAP loan and convinced her dad she'd won a $3,000 scholarship. She would pack up her book bag and take public transportation downtown. Her parents assumed she was heading to class. Instead, she would go to public libraries. So you can see how hard this girl's trying to lie. That's almost harder than the actual truth. Like just going to some sort of college, any college, would have been easier than what she had to do. Because what she just had to figure out something to do all day and then go back home. Yep. And since she was short a single credit, she would leave the house and she would either went to work at a place called Eastside Mario's or to a location she knew would piss her parents off. And another lie, of course, was about a boy. Jennifer had a boyfriend from the summer before her senior year named Daniel Wong. How can you get away with an entire relationship when your parents are literally involved in every single aspect of your life? Would only work if you are a female. No male is smart enough to fucking figure this stuff out. But women, that's why I'm so afraid to have a daughter because <laughs> they know a way around absolutely everything. <laughs> Every guy friend I have, once they find out they're having daughters, like the thought process goes straight to, holy shit, I'm going to get back everything I gave out and she's going to be a little liar and I'm going to have to see right through everything because I already, because we're just better at it. According to the Toronto Life article written by her classmate Ho, quote, Jennifer met Daniel Wong in grade 11. He was a year older, goofy and gregarious with a big laugh, a wide smile and a little paunch around his waistline. So kind of teen chubby. He played trumpet and school band and in a marching band outside of school. Their relationship was platonic until a band trip to Europe in 2003. After a performance in a concert hall filled with smokers, Jennifer suffered an asthma attack. She started panicking, was let to outside to the tour bus and almost blacked out. Daniel calmed her down, coaching her breathing. Quote, he pretty much saved my life, she later said. It meant everything. That summer, they started dating. A secret boyfriend that lasted for years. This girl is like, the Meryl Streep of lying. She pretended to be transferring to the University of Toronto and indeed to be graduating from it, telling her parents when it came time for the ceremony, are you ready for this? There wasn't enough tickets to go around and they would not be able to attend. And they believed, well, they didn't think their daughter was a liar. So they figured if my perfect daughter tells me there's no, not enough tickets to go around, then there's not enough tickets to go around. That they believed a bullshit ass lie. My like mother that. would never have stood for that as an excuse. She'd be like, I don't give a fuck if I have to stand outside the she, gates. My mom would have showed up anyway. Yeah. But get this though. Ultimately, Ho wrote, Pan's parents finally got suspicious and they began tailing her and they finally learned I, I the wonder truth. what finally made them suspicious. I'm pretty sure that was the end all be all. Like, how can you tell your parents you can't attend your graduation? Like anyone would find that sus. Anybody. They always make sure there's enough for the parents, at least. They finally caught her one day when she was seen being dropped off by Daniel, where she was supposed to meet her parents. They happened to be picking her up early quote-unquote, happened. It was not a coincidence. They even found out her job at the hospital was a lie by going in and asking for her. Whomever they spoke to said no one by that name was there and the hospital didn't even have volunteers there. When she confessed her deceptions, life in the Pan household quickly began to unravel. They were okay. livid. When Pan's parents learned that all their efforts had been for nothing, they placed further restriction on their grown-ass daughter. What else could they possibly have restricted? They already, like, picked her up from everywhere. No more cell phone. No more laptop. No more undercover dates with her boyfriend. All the free- the little bit of freedom she already had was are gone. now taken away from her. So, what was Han's excuse for not accepting Daniel? He told Jennifer Daniel was not a good fit because he's half Filipino. 
and was known for selling weed. Like, really? Your daughter doesn't even go to school. And your grown ass 20 something year old daughter who's had a boyfriend for years now because this is she's in her 20s now and they've known each other since high school. Basically, her high school sweetheart into her early 20s years. And you're going to sit there and be like, no, he's half Filipino. It's just like it's it's crazy how your daughter is literally the biggest liar on the fucking planet. And you still judge someone else because they said he smoked weed and he was half Filipino. It's like, dude, your daughter's a whole liar, like made up a whole life. Oh yeah, bullshit. She was living like two different lives. That's that's just the reality. But at age 24, they told her not only to not stay in touch with Daniel, but she had a nine o'clock curfew. At 24. At 24 years old. At the strictest my parents ever were at a, like I was like 10, 11 years old. I still didn't have to be home at nine o'clock. But that's what I'm saying. This sounds like a 16 year old punishment. A 16 year old girl, not a woman who can- Not a 24 year old who can like vote and get married and drink alcohol. Exactly. So she also began teaching piano to local kids and her parents placed her in university, which was just about to start. So it just like put her ass back on track. They're like, listen, you're going to work and you're going to go back into school. And that's that. While she eventually gained a tad more freedoms at home, her dad stayed angry. She thought about how much better her life would be without her parents. She plotted how to free herself from her parents who made her feel like she was on house arrest. Listen, we're all on house arrest right now. You have some other shit going on because you are a grown ass woman. Why don't you just leave your parents' house? You don't like it. If you're working, move out. On November 8th, 2010, at about 10.30 p.m., a 911 dispatcher received a frantic call from the pan home. Jennifer was in complete panic. I'm actually going to play the audio. This is the 911 call. Shout out to Case File because they put it up and I'm just going to borrow it from them. So here is Jennifer Pan's 911 phone call. Where are you, two three eight what? Avenue. Two three eight Avenue Road. Yes. Do you spell the the street name for me, please? Dad? your door? Are you upstairs? I can't. I'm tied. My hands are tied. You're tied? I had my cell phone in my pocket. Someone invaded your home, ma'am? Yes. And you heard, heard gunshots? They had guns and they were holding me at gunpoint. Okay. Do you hear your mom anywhere downstairs? Do you think your mom's outside too? Sorry? Do you think your mom is downstairs too still? Or is... I don't hear her anymore. Okay. Just take a deep breath, okay? Do you know, do you believe, do you know that if they know your parents, anything like that, with any relation to them, do they, do they, call them there? they just, they just came and tied you up and they, they came in and they were like, where's all your money, where's your money, where's your wallet, and they, they were asking you for money? Yeah, could you call my uncle and my aunt, please? Okay. This is your phone. Don't worry, okay? We have lots of help on the way, okay? What's your name? My name is Jennifer. Jennifer? Okay, Jennifer, you're doing a great job, okay? That's the majority of the call. She sounds like a victim there. Yeah, she's frantic. She's freaking out. You can actually hear her father screaming in the background. When the 911 dispatcher, you can hear her trying to calm her down. She almost starts talking to her like she's infantile. Like she's like, what's your name? It's just so crazy. Police arrived to find Han Pan bleeding profusely from the face from an obvious gunshot wound. In the face? That's, that's, that's just horrible. At this point, Han is at his neighbor's house. Shocked and trying to communicate with his ESL abilities while losing blood, Han mimicked a gun with his hand to warn police that there were intruders with guns. Also told them that his wife was shot and that his daughter was upstairs. Police then enter the home and follow a blood trail down to the basement where they find Bick dead face down with a blue towel on top of her, clearly done before she was shot. 
Paramedics showed up and tried their best to bring Beck back, but she was shot three times in the head at point-blank range. Jennifer was still found bound upstairs, though the binds were loose. She cried, asking to be untied, but police wanted to be sure the house was clear of any intruders first, so she still had to kind of, like, sit there. So this is a really dramatic scene for her police. When all was clear, they cut the black shoelace off with scissors in her room, probably the same ones she forged all those documents with throughout time, which is insane. Probably. Jennifer and Han were checked by paramedics, and Jennifer watched her father being driven away as he needed immediate help. York Regional Police took Jennifer down to the station since she received a clean bill of health. She told her story to Detective Slade, who warned her ahead of time her candor was crucial. Then she began to tell the detective her side of the story. This interview was a little less than two hours long, the first one, and all interrogation videos can be seen on YouTube, which total 10 hours. Her dark hair is in a braid on the left side of her shoulder, and she looks super young. Like, you would think she's maybe 15, 16, not like a full-grown adult at this point. She just looked very young. Yeah. Seemed very juvenile. And in case you're wondering out there where her brother Felix was that night and why he wasn't a victim, he was attending school away from home. Though he was brought in for questioning, of course he had alibis. He was at college. Right, he he wasn't there. (laughs) According to Jennifer in the interrogation room, this is how it went down. She went upstairs to watch TV. She heard some noises and chalked it up to her mom sort of like shuffling through things and looking around for something. So she wasn't immediately alarmed. Then she heard her mother yell for her father. But what was odd was that she called for him in English, a language rarely used in their house, let alone between both parents. And this is what caught her attention because usually it's Cantonese or Vietnamese they speak. When she opened the bedroom door, a man grabbed her and tied her hands to her back. She was forced downstairs and brought down to her knees as her parents were also on their knees close by. She realized three men were in the room and they were screaming at Bick for her wallet and cash, but Bick had no idea what they wanted. So Jennifer began trying to translate and they just kept asking over and over for money. Han gave him what he had in his wallet, which was 60 bucks at the time. Jennifer told them she had $2,000 saved for a new phone and they took her upstairs to retrieve it. She also went to claim that they found an additional $1,100 cash from her parents' recent trips to the States. She was then tied to the stairs with shoestring, and then things got even worse. The men went downstairs and started to yell at her parents about lying about the cash. This was strange off the bat, because a robbery, most people don't go back and accuse you of lying about how much more money you have. But it could also sound kind of legit that that's, that could anger them and cause them to shoot them. So who, I don't know, who knows? She got really, she got really good at lying. Yeah. They took Bick and Han down to the basement where Bick began screaming she wanted to have her daughter with them. She also heard one guy say, quote, this is taking too long. And that's my whole argument. It's like most robbers want to come in and out as quick. They're in and out. They don't want to leave evidence. They don't want to be like found out. They don't want to be there. They're kind of there for one reason and one reason only. That's why most robberies don't result in deaths because they kind of just want to go and rob and leave. So that's why... The whole confronting them after and just the whole back and forth seems very odd because either kill them if that's what you're going to do or you kind of just leave. Right. But to like do the whole back and forth and drag it out is very strange. Totally. And then according to Jennifer, this was followed by what she said sounded like two pops followed by three more. The men left and somehow Jennifer reached into her pockets to call 911. So the whole time that she was in that same position, she couldn't reach into her pocket. But all of a sudden, she can reach into her pocket. Yep. When Detective Slade left her in the room, they returned to give her her cell phone back and they asked her to sign a consent form to go through her phone files, which the first thing they're going to do. She agreed and he extended the search to go back nine days prior to the robbery and murder rather than just that night. Jennifer seemed nervous about this. It's a very strange amount of days. Like a week I could understand, five days I could understand, but to be like, I need to know what happened in the last nine days seems a little weird. Yeah, but I can also understand he has to go for that further back for investigation purposes. Like you have to eliminate all the possibilities. She seemed nervous about it, but Slade tried to downplay it, making it seem like it's just to be used as like a timestamp for the evening. Though the police didn't admit it off the bat, the police knew there were a lot of holes in Jennifer's versions of events, such as Police noted their fancy cars, a Lex and a Benz. The keys sitting right by the door. Right. If you're going to rob somebody's house, uh, why wouldn't you take their luxury take vehicles? Take their luxury cars. Also, intention was to kill to not get caught. Why is Jennifer alive? So naturally, three days after the first interview, the second interview lasted four hours long. If I was ever knock on wood, 
somehow having to deal with something like this, I would be scared after a second interview lasting longer. That's always like kind of when they start getting into interrogation mode. That's when I'd be like, "Uh, I need my lawyer. Thank you so much. The second interview lasted four hours long because they kind of turned to friends and neighbors and they were much more informed of Jennifer's past deceit and her relationship with her parents. So everybody knew what she lied about, like the high school and every... Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So the more Detective Slade pressed about her deception she had done for years to her parents, he used the opportunity to bring up Daniel. He asked her who was against her having the relationship. And mind you, this relationship had been going on for six years at this point. She stated it was her father who had the issue of dating Daniel while her mother, quote, took a backseat to Han's opinions and decisions regarding Jennifer's life decisions, including her love life. She also stated 18 months or so before the robbery, her parents made her make a choice, Daniel or them and she chose to stay home with her family. Even though she declared she would stop seeing him, of course, this was just another lie in Jennifer's life to her parents. Well, she probably agreed to stay home because she knew she could continue to lie about it. Like, why risk whatever's going to happen telling the truth of being with him when she knows she could have her family and still lie about it and still see him? She probably was just like... I thought it was probably financially motivated because she doesn't seem particularly... I don't want to say not smart because you have to have some sort of deceit. You have to be smart. But I don't think she had the survival skills to be out on her own. And she knows that. Of course, you're going to stay in your big house with your parents and your comfortable life when you know deep down like, oh, I've only been working part time and I don't have a college education and I lied about graduating high school. Like what other choice do I have? Like me going out in the world, I don't have anything. I can't lie about it. I'm going to have to prove it a little bit more. And she had never lived in a world where she had nothing. To leave all that is probably scarier than just to say, oh, I'm going to run off with my boyfriend and get a studio apartment, which most of us would realistically do by the age of 24. Somehow she manages to see and talk to Daniel, even though at this point he moved on from her drama and was seeing someone new. Oh my God. Jennifer, super jealous. She created another lie to garner his sympathy and try to win him back. Oh God, what? This psycho told Daniel she was gang raped in her home by a group of strangers And that later she received a bullet in the mail as a threat. That sounds like a thing. Win him back by saying she was gang raped in her house and they're threatening to kill her. That totally sounds like a thing. (laughs) Daniel knew she was a liar, right? He used to pick her up. I'm pretty sure he had to know she was lying. Just based on like past behavior, you should probably not believe that. And I'm sure she confided into him as a six year relationship as how horrible everything was and how much she had to lie to her parents. And you were honest in your relationships. You see, in the beginning, it was like, I understood why people believed her. Nobody knew she was a liar. Like, I get it. But now that you know she's a liar, why do you continue to believe anything that comes out of her? Right. And I'm pretty sure that's why Daniel had had it. And he didn't come running back. And soon after that, she was getting texts from a number telling her to stay away from him. We can assume his new girlfriend had stepped in at this point. When Detective Slade walked out of the room, a female officer walked in, which I'm sure was a tactic. And she kept repeating to this woman, I don't want to say anything wrong. How can you say something wrong if you're telling the truth? Right. Not only are you telling the truth, if you're telling the truth and you had nothing to do with it, what could you say that's wrong? At this point, I don't know what's real to her and what's not anymore. It's like anyone's guess. Does she believe her own lies? That's the thing. There's different types of liars. There's liars who lie and there's liars who believe their own lies. And that's why those type of people pass lie detector tests because they believe what they say. And that's why I thought maybe that's something Jennifer had. Like, I'm like, how do we know? How far does this go for her? Is she just so deceptive? She started to believe her lies? Or was this just the plot the whole time to get her inheritance? Towards the end of the second interview, after Slade walked back into the room, he had asked the burning question at this point. Why was she kept alive and her parents were shot? Why not do the same thing to you, he asked. Her only response was, quote, the only thing I can say is that I cooperated. He asked her once again whether she had any involvement and she shook her head no. Slade lets her leave and informs her of all the avenues being investigated and that the case is still ongoing. At this point, Slade informed her as well that he had spoken to Daniel, but all he said is that they hadn't spoken in a while and he provided her the secret iPhone her parents didn't know of. They got a few bits of info from Daniel, but they kind of wanted to see if Jennifer would like give him up. She didn't. She didn't even tell them that he was the one that gave her the iPhone. And with that, it was the beginning of the truth coming forward, whether Jennifer liked it or not. Three days after his wife's death, Han awoke from a medically induced coma. Han began talking with the police, but it was very apparent he was in a lot of pain. He still had shattered bones in his neck and the bullet had... Of course, he got shot in the face. Of course. The bullet had gone through his eye and he still had some fragments in his face. The bullet had missed his carotid artery only millimeters away. He had also been shot in the shoulder. 
He told the police that three men, two black, one white, had terrorized him and his wife, Bick. He also revealed to police something Jennifer didn't tell the cops. While they were being tortured, she was comfortable and moving freely about the house. What? Han said the men and her seemed very comfy around one another, and she was even, quote, chatting quietly with them, unquote. Han said in the middle of the chaos, Bick asked in Cantonese how these guys even managed to get in, and he said he didn't know as he was asleep. One of the men noticed and told him to, quote, shut up, you talk too much. Han recalled checking the door before bed, and it was locked. He didn't directly come out and say it was his daughter, but admitted there was only one other person at home that night. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he also made it clear whoever was responsible, he wanted them caught. Quote, leave no stone unturned, end quote. Even more tensely, Jennifer tried to go visit her father once. He was awake at the hospital, but Han refused to see her. Why? Just why? To try to come off like the good daughter. She's the golden child. How could she not go see her daddy? But like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Telling you, I don't understand. This is one of these cases where I was just going further and going, are you serious? Are you serious? On November 15, 2010, Bick was laid to rest, which Jennifer planned and complained about the lack of assistance from family. Two weeks after her mother's burial, Jennifer was called back into the same interrogation room she had been in twice now. At this point, she's not scared shitless. Like, hey, oh, I'm probably caught now. Like, nobody gets interrogated three times if they're not suspect, like, if they're not a suspect. She doesn't have the skills to understand how much shit she's in. There's no life preparedness at all. How do you say to yourself, one plus one is two in common sense if no one's taught you common sense? But yeah, that's, that's the very definition of this person is very book smart, but not mm -hmm. street smart. She had the whole 911 call down packed. She had her story in her head, but didn't think other things that have to line up because she didn't think of that because she's never had to experience any type of thing like this. So it's like you thought of what you thought would you would need. Like, you know, technically you're, you knew to have a story, but you didn't think like um, maybe don't walk around with whoever is the one coming around or Honestly, this sounds horrible, but if you're going to do all this, you need to make sure that people die. Because the fact that her father lived gave away the whole she seemed to be friendly with the people. Right. On her third time into the same interrogation room, she seemed detached. And this was almost five hours long. And this was by Detective William Gates. Off the bat, he asked about the secret iPhone. So he went straight in. Jennifer admitted Daniel gave it to her and she would use it to call and text friends. But you could see Gates is using a, a technique explaining to her how they use satellite and cell phone tracking. There's like a kind of friendly way to cops try to break it down. They're trying to throw her a bone. Like, don't make us bring this information out of you. We're telling you this is what it does. Now let's see what you tell me. So that was probably her opportunity to be like, well. And the one thing I found entertaining about this detective is the way he talks down to her. His big thing is, okay, okay. And he keeps saying it to her like, okay. He's acting like to like caught with a cookie jar well, in her I hand. Think emotionally, probably she's 10 years old. Yep. About two and a half hours into the five hour interrogation, he changes his tactic from questions and explanations to a full on interrogation attack on all her holes in her story. At some point it's going to happen. He switches it up once again and tries to downplay the like the empathy card, how hard all those pressures must have been and how difficult her day to day must have been. I, I'm with you. I understand this must have been really like good cop. I, I understand where you're coming from. Jennifer stayed quiet for 30 minutes and then at about three hours, Jennifer just muttered, what happens to me? So she knew. She knew. She knew she, she was knew the caught. jig was She's up. not stupid. She's never yep. been stupid. So I'm sure she knew at this point. After more pushing, Jennifer admits she was involved. However, the men weren't supposed to shoot her parents, but rather her. Right, right. I totally believe that. She claims she was in talks with a man that went by the name Homeboy, whom she met through a friend's roommate. She said Homeboy agreed to kill her for a fee. Jennifer said that night she got a text from Homeboy that stated VIP access. She was to unlock the front door as agreed. She turned the study light on and then off, signaling to them that the door was open for them. She went on to claim that she knew she was a disappointment to her family, so she put a hit on herself. Give me a break. So you want us to believe that you didn't try to figure out life without your parents. You just were trying to figure out how to no longer live because you were a disappointment. Just, ah, this sounds horrible, but like, why would you go through all this? Why wouldn't you just find another way to have the hit on on you? Like, wait until your parents aren't home and then have someone rob and make it look like they came after you. Like, why would you do anything where your parents were involved if you were supposed to be the only victim? 
Something far simpler than killing yourself. Just move the fuck out. This all could have been prevented if you had just been like, I'm 24, I'm a disappointment, I'm gonna get a job, and I'm just gonna move out. This is why I said it's an asinine case, because this isn't a 15-year-old girl who's stuck at home for the next three to five or seven years or whatever. Even though she was still half-lying, the confession was truthful enough to where they could now arrest her, which they did, for the murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father and conspiracy to commit murder on both parents, so three charges. As they were reading her rights and process of seeking an attorney, she turned to Gates and said, I thought you were on my side. Oh yeah, he totally was. That's how it works. Hello, lady. Did you think he was just going to let you go home after you basically just confessed that you're the reason one of your parents is dead and the other one's in the hospital? What did you think? You were just going to be able to go back to the crime scene? Yes, she did. Well, she's also gotten away with like everything else she's ever done. So she probably thought, okay, they'll just let me go home and try again. With Jennifer's confession and arrest taken care of, the police could now turn their focus on the three men who did the crimes and it wouldn't take them too long. Three days after Jennifer's arrest, the call log from Jennifer's phone given to her by Daniel came back. And shockingly, not, Daniel had been lying. He claimed he hadn't seen or heard from Jennifer much, but the phone revealed the truth. He had indeed stayed in touch because on November 8th alone, the day her parents were shot, Daniel called Jennifer 14 times and texted 36 times. That's the amount I hear from my spouse in like two weeks, much less someone I haven't spoken to in a while. Just saying. I don't think I've called you 14 times since you moved to Colorado. In our entire friendship. (laughs) This phone revealed way more than this as well. It showed Jennifer had been plotting this murder since at least spring of that same Man, and you know what's weird? This whole time I thought maybe he wasn't involved because he like had a girlfriend and gave up the secret cell phone. So you would think like if he gave up the phone. He has an alibi. He he doesn't care. care. I'm going to give you the secret cell phone because I'm not on it. Like neither one of you thought this out. There was even an old elementary friend who introduced her to a roommate who plotted with her to kill her father at his job, but the guy ended up taking her $1,500 and stiffing her. (laughs) What could she do? Call the cops? She was able to get $200 back, but the guy claimed they never talked about murder, and he was simply paying her back for a night out. Very clever, sir. At this point, she magically gained feelings back for Daniel, and by July 2010, they were talking again. Only this time, they plotted the murders and decided they would live off the inheritance Jennifer and her brother Felix would inevitably get. She expected about a half a million dollars. Wow. Well, remember, they were pretty successful. I'm sure they could afford high life insurance, right. things like that. The, the cars and the house. That's true. Up. Makes sense. They worked really hard. So, yeah. Daniel knew a guy named Lenford Crawford, a.k.a. Homeboy. So he was real and arranged it with him. He also gave. Well, Jen- I have a question. Because I, yeah. I, I, in all these like stories that I've ever heard about people who like do murder for hire or whatever. Why do so many people just have friends that would murder someone or commit a crime? Like, I, I've always been intrigued by why do you know someone that's willing to? Because if somebody came to me and was like, dude, I really want to kill my husband, my boyfriend, my parents. I'd be like, well, I don't know how to help you. I don't know anybody who would murder anyone, but I don't keep that type of company. I don't know if you're just sitting around one day and you're just like, yo, by the way, you ever need me to kill anyone? This is my fee. Even if one of you guys was capable of it, I would love to know the conversation or the level of comfort you'd have to feel with me to be like, dude, by the way, I murder. That's so true. It's just like, how does that happen? Like, I've always been, I know, like, I've always just been very intrigued. And I'm like, how did, how did that conversation, how did you get there? It's a great question. And so he arranged it with this guy, homeboy, like through Daniel. So Daniel knew homeboy. He also gave Jennifer, meaning Daniel, a cell with a SIM card where they would only discuss the plot on that specific phone. So these fuckers actually had like a murder phone. I don't know. He sounds a little good at this since he knew to have like a separate phone with a SIM card that you could just like throw out later. Homeboy, a.k.a. Crawford, said a typical murder would cost 20K. But for a friend, he would do it for 10K. Oh, they got the friend discount. The friend half murder off discount. Half coupon for friends and family murder. It was like a two for one special and half off. Like that's insane. <laughs> November 2nd, 2010 was supposed to be the night of the hit as homeboy had surveilled the pan home on Halloween night. Police said text messages showed that Jennifer had been questioning Daniel's loyalty. I mean, after all, he still was with someone else. I mean, he just he just helped you plot to murder your parents. I mean, where do you think his loyalty is? They went back and forth for about a week, Daniel even trying to back out, but somehow they would revert back to texting and flirting in the former yeah, relationship. Nothing says flirtatious and I want you back like, hey, I'm going to murder your parents. Nothing says love like murder. On November 8th, Crawford texted Jennifer that tonight was the night, quote, after work. 
What date was that? Um, November 8th, the, the actual Oh, night. so like they really went back and forth for a week. Okay. Yeah. So it took a, literally a whole week, but I love he had texted after work. So he's going to work. Like, let's say he works at like Best Buy. So right. Like he's just on his go like regular people. nine to five job. And he's just like, hey, murdering tonight. Like, what is wrong with people? I work in tech during the day and I'm a murderer for hire. And <laughs> what was his real name? Crawford. Like, hi, my name is Crawford, but I also go by Homeboy. <laughs> I'm Homeboy when I murder and Crawford when I'm at work. Yeah, his full name's Lenford Crawford. That's, That's a even really worse. Name. Like, Lenford, he sounds like an accountant. So it's like, I'm going to go do your taxes and then I can murder your loved one. Like, it's, it's, that's just, ins- oh my God, I can't. Through subpoenas of everyone's phones involved, they pinpointed that the three would be charged with first degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. So, same charges Eric Sean Cardi, David Milo Vagnum. I'm going to say that's right. Lenford Crawford, and also included, was Daniel Wong. Eric Cardi was apparently the hardest of them all. He was currently on the run for murdering someone else he knew named Kirk Matthews, and he was already in custody facing that murder. Cardi dealt with Jennifer most of the time and recruited the others to assist. So she knew a legit murderer. We were joking about Homeboy, aka Crawford, but like Cardi is like... He's a murderer. He's killing someone else while he's he's being charged with a different murder. All of them got tried together except Cardi because his attorney fell ill, but later faced the same fate. Jennifer took her own defense, which is rare, and she testified for seven days. She played the misunderstood victim card throughout the whole trial, but the jury didn't buy it. Oh, well, no shit. <laughs> she and the others were found guilty on all charges. At the sentencing hearing, Han spoke about losing his wife and daughter and how he doesn't have a family anymore. The fact that he survived to me after being shot in the face is so crazy three shots like three not one in the shoulder two obviously in the face. they intended to kill because you don't shoot someone in that location that many times at point blank range if you didn't try it, if you weren't intending on killing them and it's just crazy that he survived lucky and happy he survived but it is crazy that he survived that and like was still able to even speak at the trial and he also said that he felt when big died he died too of course that's his wife of however many years and they living the dream and then this freaking happens like that's that's insane her brother felix spoke as well stating that this event will hold him back for the rest of his life of course the poor kid like you're away at school and your sister fucking does this shit you don't come back from that so all of them received life in prison with parole possibility in 25 years jennifer was also given a no contact notice with her family good and no one has reached out to her in any way i was gonna say i'm like contact notice or no contact notice pretty sure your father and your brother don't want to speak to you and what's ironic about this whole situation is these days jennifer's strict life is still confined it's not like you got any freedom from this. Yeah, you didn't all of a sudden get the life you always wanted. Now you have people who tell you when to eat, when to sleep, when to go to the bathroom in front of other people. Like you literally went from having no freedom to literally having no freedom. So what was the point? She's currently at Grand Valley Institution for Women. And yo, I looked this prison up. That shit looks like a little resort compared to some of our lockups here. Like they get their own really? little like, type of apartment thing. It's still not terrible. Despite everything. And yeah, it does sound really restrictive. Life on the outside was not terrible. Not terrible. She's still not getting the worst of the worst. Yet, she still has complained about the prison conditions. <laughs> How about we put you in Rikers over here and you won't com- You won't complain about the prison you conditions. You do not want to see United States prison girl, I'll tell you that much. Get this. Her and Daniel still communicate via letters. What? Why is she allowed to freaking contact him, though? That doesn't make any sense. Those two are just never going to let each other go. Never. All of this was done because, frankly, Jennifer sounds like a lazy, lying narcissist who didn't want to let go of her freedoms without losing the comfort her parents provided for her for half a century. Next time, at age 24, get a fucking job, move out, and accept the circumstances of your actions instead of bumping off your parents. That is the case of Jennifer Pan. See, I've been waiting for this case for a while. That is batshit. And I kind of hate her. I have zero empathy for her whatsoever. I really don't. There could be a lot worse things than your parents wanting the The best best for for you. And tons of people live through that type of lifestyle and they live to tell. So why is it suddenly something so unacceptable for you? Should have just told the truth when you were 14. Yep. I'm going to go into my who does that just because um, that was crazy. and It's making me angry also. It's like one of those cases that makes me angry because I'm like, dude, you don't even know how bad life can be. Facts. And on that note. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? UPI.com. So the headline reads, man brings tux wearing llama to sister's wedding. 
An Ohio man, and this is what really got me when I read this and I was like, all right, this is my who does that. An Ohio man made his sister into a viral star when he made good on a five-year-old threat to bring a tuxedo-clad llama as his plus one to her wedding. So this is just like, for five years, he's been telling her, whenever you get married, I'm bringing a llama dressed in a tux as my plus one, and he made good on it. That is fucking hilarious. Gangster. So many people threaten to do stupid shit at my wedding, right. and no and nobody one actually it. does no it. No one Like, I it. have been saying, I told my brother a whole bunch of shit. I, I, he followed through. So he's a man of, <laughs> unlike Jennifer Pan, he is a man of his word. So it says, Mendel Weinstock, 21, said he was on a road trip with his older sister, Reva, and some friends about five years ago when his then single sibling started speculating about the details of her eventual wedding, which I probably would have answered like, yeah, I'll bring a fucking llama to your wedding. That's, <laughs> you're single. I said, if you make me come to this wedding, I'm going to bring a llama with me, he told CNN. It was just the first thing that popped into my head. Reva Weinstock became engaged in October and shortly after the phone call where she told her brother about the news, she received a text message confirmation that Mendel had booked a llama rental. At least he told her, right? You know what though? But he could have still been lying at that point. I would have been like, you're bullshitting. Right, and just been like, ha ha ha, here's if my, my, here's brother my pulled llama that, rental. I'd be like, yeah, right. When I see it I'll believe it like that's literally because you don't really think someone would do this that's what's so great about it so then she goes when my brother puts his mind to something he gets it done so at some point I had to accept it and decide that it was easier to get in on the joke than to fight (laughs) it she said Mendel Weinstock posted a photo to Reddit of the resulting scene a tuxedo clad llama standing next to his unamused sister in her bridal (laughs) gown the bride said she is planning retribution possibly at her brother's upcoming college graduation there you go I've definitely started planning my revenge, she said. He should sleep with one eye open. I hope that there is a follow-up to this article with what she did at his graduation. Because what can top a llama in a tux at your wedding? What are you going to bring, like an elephant? No matter how beautiful your outfit was, no matter how wonderful the decorations are, all people are going to talk about is that damn llama. Like, that's it. It stole the show. That's it. Your wedding was about the llama. The person doesn't count anymore. No matter what somebody says and they're like, oh my God, I went to like this really crazy wedding. It's like, dude, the the, the, the bride's brother came with a llama. You just said the girl's name and I can't remember because all I was thinking was was a llama. Like, <laughs> llama. Legi- like literally that's just what happened to me right now. So yes, I was so happy that I could find that little ray of sunshine and all the darkness and it was definitely worth it. I think I would, I would think I would cry laughing if my brother showed up to my wedding with a fucking llama. Laugh. But don't I mean, get it. Don't get any ideas to my brother who listens to this podcast eventually. So please don't get any ideas. Yeah, bring your girlfriend. So glad that I finally got to hear this case. It was really just so many levels of insane. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Please, during this times like this is like a perfect time to just distract yourself by listening. So listen, subscribe, email us if you want to hear about something. I'm sure that people have had plenty of time to start researching on the internet. You see something interesting, email it to us. Maybe we'll cover it. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Toodles.